welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian O'Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Sarah Poltz, a fellow at Stanford Law School. We will discuss her articles, Loyalties and Royalties, which will be published in the Hastings Law Journal, and Co-Creating Equality, which will be published in the Southern California Law Review. So welcome to the show, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited about this. Um, I got to say just at the outset that these are both really great papers. I super enjoyed reading them. They're very clever and um, and I'm really looking forward to talking to you about them. Oh, it makes me happy to hear. Yeah, yeah. So um, both of these articles, broadly speaking, are about attribution and profit allocation norms in the music business. So one of the things I was really interested in, sort of like on the outset, was how you got interested in in this particular subject. So I, I'm interested in these questions of resource allocation and creative collaboration in the context of uh, the startup context was really where uh, I first started to think about the relationship between friendship and how we allocate rewards and being in Silicon Valley, knowing a lot of people who are co-founders and having conversations with them about how they're doing their equity and how they're managing the dynamics of a small team, I really noticed a trend that there were a lot of equity splits that were equal between people who, from a market value perspective, were not bringing equal skill sets to the table. And that was interesting to me. And I started to think about how friendship and business uh, create tensions and conflicts uh, in the context of collaboration and being an IP scholar thinking about you know, what might that look like in the case of music and what might that look like in the case of screenwriting. And fortunately, when it comes to the music industry, there's so much public information available that it gave me a chance to really uh, get very granular on how these kinds of questions are being decided by artists. Mm-hmm. Well, so we're talking about two different papers here, both of which use empirical data to ask and kind of answer to some degree legal legal questions, like really tough ones. How would you describe the difference between the questions that you're asking in loyalties and royalties and co-creating equality? And, and in addition, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the data set that you were you were using. Was it the same data for both papers or were there differences? So there were differences in the data set related to the questions that I was looking at. And co-creating equality is in a sense the the first in this set of papers because the findings of co-creating equality uh, become assumptions and become a basis for the investigation in loyalties versus royalties. So in co-creating equality, I was looking at the question of how the contributors to the writing of a song decide to split royalties on the basis that in copyright law, we're hoping to set default incentives that are going to promote uh, the quality of, of creative work that's produced, uh, that are going to promote collaboration and promote the, the quantity of work that's produced as well. And the idea, the conventional idea is that to set an efficient default, we look at what are the actual preferences of the creators in that space? And that's an empirical question. 
the uh, the context in which I'm asking that question is uh, a legal context in which there are, have been assumptions about what that empirical answer is, which have tended to uh, assume that actually proportional allocations based on contributions are what collaborators prefer. The, the idea being that if someone makes a greater contribution to a joint work, that they should receive a larger share of the rewards, uh, of the royalties. Uh, you can contrast that with the existing uh, default equal split rule, which is uh, that the co-authors of a joint work are going to share in license proceeds equally in the absence of a contract to the contrary. And uh, the the way in which courts have worked around that to uh, de facto uh, put in place the uh, their belief that proportional compensation is uh, most incentivizing has been the establishment of this control doctrine, which is the term that I use in the paper. Um, essentially, there's a trend toward finding works to be uh, single authored. And that's the the question that I focus on in co-creating equality is really, uh, is this is this assumption correct? Is this assumption that proportional compensation is preferred by creators or the most relevant set of creators uh, correct? And it's a empirical question. Uh, and the data that I look at there, which becomes the basis for the next paper, is the uh, there are two kinds of data. I look at all gold record groups that have uh, been uh, credited over the last 60 years across genres. So it's popular music. And I coded their songwriting processes for uh, whether the contributions of the group members to the writing of songs were equal or unequal, or whether some people didn't contribute at all. And I also uh, use a much larger data set, which is over, over a million songs of co-read, co-written songs from the ASCAP uh, repertory. ASCAP is a performance rights organization which collects songwriting royalties on behalf of artists. And this 1.2 million songs is actually a significant proportion of all the co-written songs for which royalties are collected in the U.S. It's about half, uh, it's just under half of all the co-written songs in the ASCAP repertory. And the reason that it's useful for the question that I'm asking in co-creating equality is that for about half of those songs, there are there's one writer that's a member of ASCAP, one member that's uh, registered with a different performance rights organization. And ASCAP reveals what proportion of the royalties they control. So with that understanding, I'm able to infer how the royalties are split for those songs. So I look at how are royalties actually split. I look at how that relates to the contribution levels um, of musicians in in groups, in the group context. Uh, But I try and extrapolate in that paper to co-songwriting more generally uh, on the basis of the the all songs data. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So just to, just to sort of clarify for myself a little bit, right. I mean, the, the tendency in courts is to trend toward attributing authorship and consequently copyright ownership to as few people as possible. But your findings seem to be that when you let creators decide for themselves, they tend to distribute authorship more broadly than that. Is that, is that a fair statement? Certainly with respect to co-songwriting. So the data 
uh, to be clear, is just co-songwriting data. But the point that I make in the paper is that when it comes to the joint authorship default rules, that's a group of creators for whom the default rules are most relevant. Uh, songwriting is not included in work for hire. Uh, it is an area where the co-creators are less likely to be uh, contracting out uh, potentially. And uh, the quantity of songs and the rate of co-authorship is much higher than it is in other copyright industries. For instance, in the visual arts, there's less joint authorship, whereas uh, a significant minority of all of the songs in the that are collected royalties in the U.S. are co-written. Most songs still have just one author, but nearly nearly half have two or more authors. So, uh, joint authorship is really significant in the music industry. I mean, and, and that makes a, a lot of sense to me. I mean, one question I kind of had about the the sort of like what we could extrapolate from the data in your paper is sort of what this might tell us about the incentives of songwriters slash band members in relation to the works that, that they're producing. And we tend to think of copyright as kind of like a unitary incentive. Is it possible that, you know, band members have other incentives other than copyright ownership that are driving some of these allocation decisions? Sure. I, I, and I think that the, the choices that they make around authorship allocation are just, are just one of the ways that they are responding to those incentives. And um, it's just, it's one aspect of uh, collaboration that, you know, is, is visible and can be tracked in this project, but it tends to also align with how they make decisions. Uh, it tends to align with other kinds of creative choices also around um, the, the genre of music uh, that uh, the, the groups at least were creating. Um, the, the incentives that uh, I'm looking at are particularly financial incentives. I'm focusing on that because that's what copyright focuses on. But the point that I, a point that I make in loyalties versus royalties is really that Creators are less concerned with the absolute amount of financial rewards that they receive, but they are concerned with their comparative standing uh, next to their collaborators. So it matters to them whether they're treated equally or they're or they're not. Um, and it particularly matters if they share a prior friendship. And music is an industry where, in my data, I found that seventy percent of the of the groups that I looked at that had a gold record. Most of the members had a prior friendship before they started making music together. So friendships and deep relationships are really just prevalent in the music industry. And those shape the kinds of allocation decisions that people are making. So one takeaway is that financial incentives, uh, as you were saying, we tend to think of these as have a unitary strategy across copyright law, but really they're sensitive to social context. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so in addition, I mean, it seems like one really, I think, important and under under recognized point that you're making in the paper is that the sort of default norms being adopted by courts in relation to authorship allocation 
seem not to align with the act actual kind of practices, at least in the music industry. I mean, I kind of, I wonder if like, do you have thoughts about why that is and what courts should do about it, if anything? I mean, is it a problem or is it just kind of like do it yourself or we'll fix it for you, whether or not you like it? I mean, I think that it makes sense to push back against this trend toward finding works to be single authored for uh, on, on the basis that musicians, co-songwriters are more likely to be relying on the default rules. And a number of the the cases that have tended to shape the law uh, of joint authorship have been cases where, for instance, Al-Muhammad, this is a, a film industry case where usually uh, it should have been covered under work for hire. So really it was a, an error on the part of the, the the parties that were involved in producing this film, Malcolm X. And I don't think that we should be changing joint authorship law uh, when there's already a mechanism uh, work for hire in place. And uh, I, I think that that should be relied on and they'll be more conscientious next time. Uh, I think that the, the default law should really be setting uh, setting up a, uh, a system that's going to reduce transaction costs for uh, more more creators than um, it currently does. Yeah, I mean, and your invocation of Al Muhammad in this context was really interesting to me because, like, I mean, teaching that case is always a really kind of a a fun moment because it kind of gives you an opportunity to talk about creative contributions and what they mean and how we should, we should think about them and, you know, what counts as joint authorship. And in, in particular, I mean, the, the opinion in that case is really unsatisfying, right. From a kind of doctrinal perspective, because it, it, it seems, it just feels like a fait accompli, right? They're just like, well, we've just decided that no one seriously thinks that this kind of contribution should count. Mm -hmm. But your, your research shows that in a lot of bands, creators actually think really differently about the collaborative process and, and what counts as a, a creative contribution. And I guess, you know, one question I, that was like, percolating through my head as I was reading both of these papers was like, you know, we tell ourselves this story that copyright is for creators, but it seems to me that in some ways what these papers are telling me is that copyright is really for publishers. I mean, I, I think that that's, I think that that's right. I, I think that it can become more suitable for creators if, if we're willing to, Move towards an industry-specific rules for for joint authorship. Uh, I, you know, I've just said moments ago that I, we could just have one rule, uh, a more permissive rule for granting joint authorship, and parties like you know Warner Brothers can be will be extra mindful in the future to ensure all contracts are in place. But uh, what I what I argue in loyalties versus royalties is that there is a basis for going forward with an industry-specific approach. In the dicta in Al-Muhammad, it's even suggested that the uh, approach that they take might not be appropriate for the words and music of a song, but that's not the way that it's actually been applied. Uh, so courts could pu push back against that. One way that they could do that would be to determine that 
the kind of control that's required is just control over one's own contributions as opposed to requiring control over the whole work. Um, it's, or, or they could take the industry specific approach and say, this is not how uh, joint authorship is going to be uh, defined in, in music. And we don't have empirical data to necessarily lay out an approach for, for other industries. But when it comes to, to music, I think that the, the trends are strong. Um, I, I think that if we were moving towards uh, a creator-focused model, we would be looking at the, the practices that are related to the goals of copyright law, like improved production, improved quality um, within those particular industries. Um, in loyalties versus royalties, I do some initial footwork on some of those questions looking at you know, how does a, a royalty split relate to the quantity and quality of work produced. I found that um, joint authorship credits didn't make a difference in how much was, how much work was produced, but I did find a relationship between uh, the way that royalties are allocated and the quality of music that was released in terms of sales and in terms of, of Grammy awards. Of course, more work needs to be done there. But uh, some of these, the, the, the bigger point is that there are a lot of unanswered empirical questions that could help us uh, better tailor our laws towards promoting, um, you know, creators' interests and society's interests in, in better works. Mm-hmm. So, in doing this empirical research, did you find differences in attribution and allocation norms among different genres of music? And to the extent that you saw those you kind of have a sense of like what might've caused them. So an interesting thing to me was that genre really didn't matter. And I, you know, I thought that maybe it it would, if you go by stereotypes that you could imagine or geographic stereotypes, maybe coastal groups are more, uh, perhaps more uh, transactional and maybe Southern groups are more warm and sharing, or maybe, maybe, Christian music is more, maybe they tend to share more, whereas uh, more, you know, heavy metal might sh- might share less. I found that these genre differences that you might link to the emotional content of the music really didn't make a difference, and the genre differences were were mostly explained by other factors like how many people are in the group. So heavy metal, it looks like from one angle, it looks like oh, heavy metal is less likely to split equally to include everyone. But really, that was basically accounted for by the larger group sizes. And, and that was an interesting uh, insight to me was that it's it's not just, of, of course, there are industry norms and probably genre norms. But in terms of looking at, you know, that decision of, you know, what's the most, what choice are people preferring? There are factors that are, could be used to predict uh, reward preferences more broadly, um, namely, you know, group size was a big one. So that as the number of collaborators increases, uh, five was really the magic number. The likelihood of splitting equally or including all contributors as joint authors just plummets. Right. So if you get bigger than the Beatles, then you stop allocating broadly. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> right. So... I mean, another another question I, I I really was like like trying to wrap my head around was sort of like look 
to the extent you can extrapolate from the data and from like observation, what do you think is causing this difference between allocation norms among musicians as opposed to sort of like what courts think those allocation norms ought ought to look like. I mean, you know, the title alone of, you know, loyalties versus royalties is sort of setting the stage for us to be thinking about, you know, how people are making these decisions in a kind of private law sort sort of way. Like, why do you think they find the unitary authorship norms unappealing? Uh, well, I can I can talk about why they make the choices that they do. And the major factor that predicts the way that authorship is allocated and that royalties are allocated is a prior friendship between the collaborators. So I found that initial relationships or expectations that go along with an initial relationship, really shape the economic aspects of the collaboration. And people who are, you know, begin collaborating because they met through an advertisement, for instance, they become friends. For sure, they become friends. They're spending, you know, many days of the year in a small van with these people. They, they know them like siblings. But the initial allocations are, are very sticky and they're very difficult to renegotiate. And they really... Uh, they really do predict the, the split. So one finding that I had is that uh, if you remove the prior friendship groups from the data set, there is no more, there's no more preference for equal splitting. So these prior friendships are really driving that, that tendency. Um, I would still, I would say that it's interesting nonetheless, that even if you exclude prior friendships, the rate at which groups were splitting equally or including all, all, all contributors as co-authors uh, would still be you know, 35%, which is a lot higher than you might predict from a more economic self-interest type of model. Um, but the the prior friendships are really driving the industry level trend uh, for the groups in, in my data set. And the interesting question to me is, you know, why, why equality? It's not just generosity. The people, from interviews that I did, I've talked to groups uh, where they felt quite proud, and I think rightly so, that they were generous with their collaborators who contributed less. A major uh, majority contributing songwriter would often say, you know, they didn't really add that much to the song, but I give them as a rule, you know, 15% uh, to recognize uh, the value that they bring. And, and they're the right to feel generous about that. But when there's a prior friendship involved, that became 50%. It became a pro rata share. Um, so there's a, the driving factor is really uh, the expectations that come with different relationships and how those are, are driving uh, economic decision-making for creators. One of the things that kind of struck me about the story that you're telling in, in some ways in both of these papers is that there's kind of a, you know, like don't kill the goose that laid the golden egg quality to the decisions that that songwriters or that band members are making. And it's almost like allocating credit is a kind of proxy for recognizing mutual contributions in a way that enables the band to 
stay together and keep generating revenue. Is that like a fair way of looking at the implications of of what you're finding? I I think that that's that's right. I I think that, and I think that that explains you know why in the groups where the members don't mostly have prior friendships, why they're perhaps more generous than you might expect uh, if they were just using kind of operating under purely market expectations uh, or the way they might expect compensation in a workplace environment, a more typical workplace environment. Uh, it doesn't explain you know, why there's a, such a strong preference for equality in the friendship case, other than if the expectation is equality, then what what does it mean to not kill the goose? It just means to you know, meet the expectation that the parties have. Um, and it was interesting to me how the same fact pattern of contributions would be read as entailing different uh, a different appropriate level of compensation depending on the relational goals of the parties, which is really a kind of consideration that's would be totally alien to copyright law. Um, and I, I don't suggest that relationships become a, a factor that, you know, courts try to assess. Um, and I don't think they would need to do that um, when you have such prevalence as you do in the music industry, where, you know, you could look at just the industry norm and uh, you, you'll see that you'll see the trend. Um, the fact that it's driven by friendships doesn't need to come into the 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 actual analysis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So one other question that I had, and this was more like like a th- a thought question because I'm not sure exactly how you'd study it, but sort of of necessity, your data set consists exclusively of successful musicians right Mm -hmm. and that's cool because those are the ones we've heard of but actually successful musicians are like a tiny fraction of the musicians that are out there and at least in theory we care about incentives for all musicians not just successful ones And, and i wonder like to what extent sort of the sort of selection effects are shaping what you can learn from the data that's available to you? Sure. So that's a great question. There are two things that I would, would say to that. First uh, is that this, this point that I was making about the stickiness of the initial choice addresses that somewhat. So these groups are making that choice before they've had their big success. I mean, they might have a, a feeling of, oh, we're going to be really great. But I, I think that that's probably true of a lot of people who decide to invest their, you know, their time and energy. Not everybody. Some people, you know, their goal is just to have fun, but they make the choice early on and they tend not to change it. And in about the, I think it's around a quarter of the cases, they'll change the initial split. And it tended to be in the direction of equality is something and in the direction of uh, crediting all, all contributors, even, even those who made a significantly smaller contribution and the other point that I would make about uh, you know, what does this say about artists more generally um, is that the experiment that I do in the paper in loyalties versus royalties can address that somewhat. Um, that was based on participants who were not selected for musical ability um, 
at all, let alone, you know, music success. And this was just typical participants that are, you know, crowdsourced for an experiment who were presented with the two scenarios uh, randomly assigned. And the factor that predicted their allocation was this prior friendship. Uh, so those are two points that I think go to, you know, how generally applicable it is. I, I'm also working on a book that uh, expands on this using data from 100 interviews that I did with songwriters uh, kind of at every level of success. So it has the, the platinum, uh, multi-platinum songwriters, but it also has smaller groups, you know, experimental punk groups, um, groups that are, you know, making ends meet essentially. And the trend is true, is true there as well. So in, in the book, I go into that um, to focus on uh, collaboration in music more generally, since you know, most groups, unfortunately, are not going to be earning gold records. But nonetheless, you know, yeah. most of the music I listen to is not by groups that have earned gold records. So it's, you know, do we want to encourage that kind of collaboration? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and so like, I really love this sort of meshing of quantitative and and qualitative research. I wonder to what extent, like when doing these interviews, you've found the interview subjects to be sort of conscious of the allocation norms and the sort of incentives associated with them and whether what they say is consistent with what you found when you looked at the data. It really is. And it, it was which was very interesting to me. It was very consistent with the experimental data, for instance. And but one thing that I did find very interesting is that the people that I've interviewed are not aware of the the friendship trend. They're not really thinking about it in terms of I provided an allocation that was more generous in this case, because we had a prior relationship that almost never came up. That only came up with one interviewee who in interestingly was a successful uh, teenager who had a group with you know her brother and said, maybe it's just because he's my brother. Everyone else had a, a different type of, a different kind of explanation. Um, but most often it was something that they, it just seemed fair to them. And I think that's a point that I try and you know, emphasize too. It's not that equality is fair or equal outcomes is fair and allocating based on contributions is unfair. They're both fair, but they're incremental principles and it depends on the expectations of the parties and perhaps the norms of a domain, which principle is appropriate. Uh, so I, what I did find is that whoever I was interviewing almost whatever way they were splitting, whether it was equally or based on contribution, I found myself agreeing that of course, of course that's the right approach to a right approach to take. And to me, that's the value of having the, the quantitative data is that it allows you to take a, a higher level view and look at, look at the trends that, um, you know, our own uh, rationales for, or justifications uh, for our own decisions can be post hoc. And this helps us look at like, what are the actual factors that, are, are more useful uh, in predicting how we'll, uh, how we'll actually divvy things up. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, like, based on all of the research in both these papers and sort of your reflection on them as a copyright scholar, like, 
what if anything do you think that they should tell courts thinking about these questions about like disputes over uh authorship allocation attribution allocation revenue allocation i, I mean should this inform the doctrine or should courts be thinking about like the doctrine independently of what people in particular industries are doing like you know what 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 should we do with this understanding i think that the the takeaway should be that industry specific rules are going to be are going to be more efficient and of course of course courts want to have a an outcome that feels fair for the parties that are in front of them um and I, I think that that can be consistent with an industry-specific approach. That's something that you know, we haven't, it, it hasn't been really embraced in copyright law, but uh, it, in fact, industry-specific considerations have driven the development of the law of general application. And so I think we should just be uh, a bit more aware of the way that industry-specific uh, considerations have shaped law, the law generally and just rein them in and perhaps it, it can be an explicit factor as it's as appeared in dicta. Um, but it really, I, I do think that empirical evidence can uh, help that I uh, help, help those choices become more, more clear to decision makers. Um, yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. Right. And that's like one of the things that I was taking away from both of these papers. And yet it's really frustrating that copyright law from a doctrinal perspective is really resistant to sort of recognizing the empirical realities of how different industries often work. And like coming back to Al-Muhammad, I mean, I think that was a big part of the problem in that case, which, you know, didn't really effectively frame that as being industry specific, but sort of was thinking about just kind of big picture efficiencies. And and it reflects the extent, like what I was kind of asking you earlier, right? I mean, it's like, what does it tell us about who copyright is for, Mm -hmm. right? Because it really seems to me that it says copyright is for the people who are trying to monetize the work, not for the people who are creating it. And on some level, it suggests that in a lot of ways, Copyright doctrine doesn't care about what the people who are creating the work think about attribution and revenue allocation. It cares about what the people distributing the work care. Yeah, I mean, and I, I can see why uh, there could be a, a temptation to have leaned more in that direction when so much of the media consumed was produced in high fixed cost industries. But uh, that's just yeah. that's just not really that's less and less true all the time. Uh, particularly, I think with you know we'll see as as AI becomes a tool that's used by creators, and I think the applying this high fixed cost industry model across you know the diversity of creative contexts just isn't really going to get us where we're hoping to go with with copyright law in terms of. Wow. Inspiring, inspiring creators uh, to produce things that they're willing to share uh, with the rest of us. Amazing. So Sarah, this was, this was great. 
uh, again, I, I, I can't tell you how much I love these two papers. And I'm really excited to know kind of where you're, where you're taking them next. So if you could say a little something about sort of like your ongoing research project, because I'm, I'm really excited to, to read your, 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 your upcoming work. Sure. I mean, I'm, I'm developing this book uh, to have a chance to go deeper into a lot of the questions that the papers don't address from this project more generally. These papers are really just, in a way, the high-level finding, but I have a lot of other data, uh, quantitative data and interview data, that will just provide an opportunity to go deeper into the way that creators think about contributions uh, more generally. Uh, and But then I'm also interested in looking at you know, how we value and weigh contributions of different types of, of collaborators and looking at that experimentally uh, and how we how we attach value to different authors. And I think that AI raises a lot of interesting questions for that too, how much of the value uh, results from human authorship, if any. Uh, and those are the kinds of questions that I think an experimental model will provide some interesting provocations for the development of doctrine. Amazing. Well, thanks so much. Uh, I can't wait to read the rest of you know, your new work. And uh, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thanks so much, Brian. Thank you.